grab your Bibles, look at James. Let's keep going. We've been taking small chunks. Uh, like I said, when we first kicked off, there's five chapters in the book of James. We're going to be in here for 22 weeks, so we're going to go slow. Even those deeper dives uh, come. Uh, it's a way to help make a big church feel small, too. Come if, and connect and meet some people, and we'll, we'll take further looks into things that come up in James. But we only got three verses today, uh, so let's take a look at them. Let's jump right in. We've got verses 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 1. Here's what it says. Do not be deceived. Let's stop there. <laughs> no, seriously. We'll get through all three verses, but... I mean, that's kind of a big statement right off the bat. He's, he's challenging us not to be deceived. But I just want to ask you, do you think it's possible for you to be deceived? Like, do you think it's possible that somebody could maybe tell you a lie that is so appealing to you that you kind of lay hold of it both hands? Do you think you could be, be deceived into some doubt? Do you think you can be tricked? Because if you don't think deception is at least a possibility, you're, you're pretty arrogant. Um, deception is a possibility for all of us that we have to face. Um, Paul, in Ephesians 6, he's talking about the devil who is called, uh, in Revelation 12, the deceiver of the world. Um, he's also known as like the father of lies. And he's talking, Paul in Ephesians 6, is talking about uh, the devil as somebody who has schemes. It's just the schemes of the devil. Now, it's football season. It's the greatest time of the year. Uh, <clears throat> amen. Yeah, we got it. Uh, when you think of watching a football game... There is an offensive scheme and a defensive scheme. It talks about like game plans. Like there is planning that goes on in a scheme. It's a thought out plan. Now it's kind of mind blowing to think about, but there are thought out plans developed for the purpose of our deception. That'll get you. Like there are thought out schemes and plans that are developed for our deception. So here's what I want us to get before we move forward. Deception is a real threat that all of us face. That we can be deceived into sin. That we can be deceived into doubt. That we can be deceived into bad doctrine. And this is where it kind of connects to the text that we're going to look at today. We're more vulnerable to deception in the midst of trials. Like when life is hard, when it's difficult, when you're going through difficult things, in those moments we're more uh, vulnerable to kind of buy into some of the lies that we're told. Because who's, who's James' audience? If you remember in week one, he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, or basically who have been dispersed. And they've been dispersed because of persecution. They were in Jerusalem, persecution happened, they dispersed. And they're living, they left their home to live in foreign places, they left their job, they left their community, and that made life pretty hard. They're in the midst of a trial. And James' warning to them, specifically in their trials, is, hey guys, don't be deceived. Like in the midst of your trials that you're going through, you're vulnerable to deception. And I don't want you to be deceived. And he warns them not to be deceived. Now, I want to read the passages that we looked at last week uh, to kind of get a running start into this don't be deceived statement that James makes to kind of get the context of what he's saying. So this is what was preached last week. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Kind of still in that theme of trial in chapter 1. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now listen. He's saying following, and this is what we know, following Jesus can get you into all kinds of hardships. 
And Jesus was clear about that up front. Like, hey, they hated me first. If they hate you, don't be surprised. He says, you're going to follow me. It's the narrow road, not the broad road. So he was very vocal about following me is going to be difficult. It's going to get you into some hardships. They know this. Like the reason they're dispersed is because they face persecution because they faithfully follow Jesus in a context that that wasn't too popular to do. So they know following Jesus can put you or bring you to hardships and hard times and trials. But don't think that he's leading you to sin. Because here's, here's where it gets tricky. Following Jesus can lead you into hard times. And your sinful decisions can also lead you into hard times. So don't confuse the two. If I had to like sum it up in my own words, what James is saying is, hey, you can do stupid all by yourself. <laughs> right? You, don't, don't blame God for that. Like the reason that you're away from home and going through all kinds of opposition is because you faithfully followed Christ in a context where it wasn't popular and that persecution puts you in these hard times. But the reason that you're not getting along with your friends is your own problems because you're a gossip. Like you can't control your own mouth. Like we'll get to that later on in James. Or because of your own sinful passion. That's why you're quarreling. We'll get to that in chapter 4. Like, you're doing your own sinful... Like, don't, don't blame God for that. Like, your sin has put you into your own problems. So there's some confusion that's happening, and he's telling them, I don't want you to be deceived. Or maybe put it this way. Don't let your hard times lead you to make false conclusions about God. Don't let your hard times lead you to make false conclusions about God. Don't, don't lead your, your circumstances, your tough your situation that you're in, your trial, to lead you to think, oh, God is against me. God wants me to sin. God has forgotten me. God has abandoned me. God doesn't care about me anymore. Like, don't, don't let it make those conclusions, which, when you think about, it was kind of at the heart of the deceiver's first deception. When Satan deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? an attack on the character of God? Like, does, is God holding out on you? Like, there's something better for you that God doesn't want you to have. Does he really care about you? Is, is he really good? Can he really be trusted? And guys, they're in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine if they were at the DMV? <laughs> Can you imagine if they're at the ICU? Like in those situations that we'd be more susceptible to kind of believe a lie that God is not good or that he's forgotten us or he doesn't care about us. Guys, deception is a threat on a normal day. How much more is a deception a threat when we're in the midst of trials, when we're going through hard things? So let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you find yourself questioning God, questioning the goodness of God? Wondering if God still loves you, if he still cares about you, if he still sees you, if he's abandoned you. Because here's what's true. In those moments where we have those questions, those are tough moments. Those are hardships. Those are trials. Nobody questions the goodness of God when everything's going right. But as soon as everything's kind of going a mess and you're walking through the hard stuff in life, then like those thoughts creep into mind, those doubts creep into mind. So, So here's my question. How... Do we avoid being deceived in the trials of life? How how do we fight back when when life is hard and the doubts about God's character and his goodness kind of come creeping in and and those thoughts kind of wage war? And I'm telling you, some of you in this room, you're like, I'm there right now. Like, I'm, I'm there now. I'm wondering, is God good? Does he love me? Has he forgotten me? 
Because my circumstances are raising some questions about that. And others of you, you just need to take good notes because your time is coming. But, but we're going to have to deal with this. So let's, let's look at our, our text together. Let's read all three verses. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, I want you to know, uh, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to Christians that were in Jerusalem that were scattered because of persecution. These are people that James cares about. He's their pastor. Like when he says, beloved brothers, like James is, is like, I'm writing this to you because I love you. I care for you. And not so much in our text, but as we go on through the book of James, he's going to say some tough stuff. We can't abandon his pastoral heart and his care for the people he's writing to. So he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Like he's going to remind them again of God's goodness. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So here's what we're going to try to do, a big overview, and then we'll get into it. What is James saying in these three verses? Well, I think James wanted the first century believers to not be deceived by their trials in a way that pulls them away from God. He doesn't want them to be deceived by their trials to make conclusions about God and his character that makes them not follow God, not trust God, not obey God. He doesn't want their hard circumstance in life to result in them not loving and following and obeying God. And we would say the same for you. We don't want you, when you go through hard things, when you do get that bad news from the doctor, when you do get let go from your job, when you do struggle financially, when you do struggle relationally, to make conclusions, bad conclusions about God and his character that lead you not to be close to him and not to follow him. So how does James do that or what does he do? He reminds them of the goodness of God. Specifically, he reminds them of the goodness of God in creation. He reminds them of the goodness of God in salvation. And he reminds them of the goodness of God in their future redemption. Now, let's see that in the text, because some of you are like, I read those verses, I don't see that in there, and now you think I'm lying to you, and I thought we were closer than that. So, let's look at it together, and we're going to see it. Let's look at verse 17. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, nowhere else in Scripture is God referred to as the Father of lights. Only here in James. So it's kind of an unusual description of God. I'm going to ask, why is James referring to God that way? What point is he trying to make? What is he getting at here with this title of God as the Father of lights? And oftentimes when we think of God as the Father, we tend to think of this paternal um, caregiver, provider, which is true of God. But most often in Scripture, when it refers to God as Father, it's talking about God as Creator, or He's the originator, like He fathered this world. So, for an example, like in Job, it says, Who fathers the drops of dew? And what would be the answer to that question? God, right? It doesn't mean like He cares for, nurtures them. It means like they, he, he, it came from Him. He fathered, like, this is, he produces it. He he originates this. He's the creator of it. So he's getting this idea of creator. And when he uses the word lights, that word for lights is a word that's used to talk about the lights of heaven. So like the sun, the moon, the stars. So as James uses this phrase, father of lights, we're getting, he's the originator or the creator of the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the, the lights in the sky that you see, where did they come from? God. 
came from God. Like God is the creator. That's what's in mind here. And after God made the heavens and made the stars and made the sun and made the moon, what did he say? He said, it is it's good. And that's the point that James is trying to reinforce these people. God is good. Don't be deceived by your hard circumstances. Our God is good and good things come from him. But when we're in our trials, that can be hard to see. We can tend to forget that because all we see is our trial. All we see is the pain in front of us. All we see is what we're dealing with. All we see is what we're frustrated by. We just kind of be consumed by that situation and we can forget that the sun rose today. We, we can forget that we have air that we're breathing right now that we don't deserve to breathe. You track like like simple, everyday, miraculous blessings go unnoticed. Like we don't, we don't see the goodness of God in the start. Like look to the Psalm 19. Like the heavens declare the glory of God. Like we tend to miss that because the trial's right in front of us. And James is saying, don't miss that. Like you can't make these false conclusions about God. Have you seen the sunrise? Have you seen the lights in the sky? Where do you think that came from? Our good God. Like don't, don't miss these little things. We, we can miss these amazing blessings or these amazing signs of the greatness and goodness of God all around us because we're so consumed by our trials. For example, let's say if you're a parent. And you have a kid who uh, you love and you care for and you provide for. And they come to you and they want the brand new iPhone. And they want it now. Uh, and you tell them no. And they throw a fit. So you say, go to your room. In that moment, I'm guessing they don't turn to you and say, well, I'm thankful that you have provided a room for me. <laughs> right? They're just mad, like, how, don't you care about me? Why don't you provide? Like, they're going to be consumed by that. But they don't, they miss this, like, everyday amazing provision that's like, yeah, you have a roof over your head. You're welcome. I fed you dinner. You're welcome. All this, like, no, I'm not grateful for that because you're not giving me what I want. Like, James is saying, like, I know you're in a difficult situation, but can we please just take a step back, call a time out, and look up? Do you see what God has made? Do you see what he's provided? Are you breathing right now? You're welcome. That's what he's like. Like he's don't don't miss this. There's a theological term for it. It's called common grace. It's the grace of God that everybody experiences. Whether you believe in God or not, you can breathe air. Whether you believe in God or not, the sun shines and the rain falls. That's common grace. So look at let's look again at our verse. Verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down. From the Father of lights. Now that phrase coming down uh, communicates ongoing action. Uh, so what he's saying is God didn't just create the earth and do this amazing stuff way back when and then kind of step away. It's continuing to come down. His goodness is continuing to come down. Now there is a belief that thinks that way. It's called deism. And deism is the belief that kind of God created everything, but he kind of wound it up like a clock and he just kind of stepped away and it kind of functions on its own. But he's not like intimately involved in his creation. James is saying, that's not the case. Like, yes, God made natural law and he made uh, gravity and he made the earth to spin and go around the sun and all those things work, but he's not distant from his creation. Like, his goodness is continuing to come down. So yeah, it's working the way he designed it to work, but the sun rose today also because he said so. And creation obeys his voice. He is still intimately involved in his creation. It's continuing to come down. He's still involved. And why is he still involved? Because he's good. 
He's good. He, you can see it that the creation is still working. It's still working because he's holding it together. But it's more than just uh, creation when we think of like sun, stars, like the bigness of God there. It's like everything that he has made. Because what does he say? He says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Like everything that you enjoy in this world, like where do you think it came from? It's come from God. Like companionship. The enjoyment of friendship. Who invented that? God. Marriage. This beautiful union between a man and a woman. Whose idea was that? God. The recreational act of marriage. Right? Know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Who came up with that? God. That's God's idea. Kids? Family unit? Like you, you you have a kid and you think, I didn't know I could love somebody so much. What an amazing gift. Where did that come from? God. Your ability to laugh and enjoy life, where'd that come from? God. Taste buds that you can enjoy barbecue? (laughs) Amen? Like, yeah. And if you don't enjoy barbecue, you should get to know God. (laughs) But all of those things are like, The simple things like as a gift, like our capacity to enjoy companionship and relationship and intimacy and food and friends and laughter, all of that is from God. And you say like in your trials, like don't miss the goodness of God that's all around us. It's all around us. Don't don't be deceived by your trials. Don't let your trials distort your view of God. Notice how verse 17 ends. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down constantly from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no shadow or no shifting shadows, your translation may say. But what the point that James is making is God's goodness is always at high noon. Like there's no, there's no change in it. Or put it this way, just because your circumstances have changed doesn't mean God's character has changed. Just because your circumstances have changed doesn't mean God's character has changed. He's still the same good God that hung the sun in the sky and hung the stars in the sky and the moon. Like, that's still our same good God that, that made this wonderful earth that we live in. It's given you life and air to breathe. Same God. So just because your circumstances have changed, don't make faulty conclusions about the character of God. He's still good. But God's goodness is even bigger than just um, common grace that he extends. He has a special grace that he extends. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, the phrase brought us forth means to give us life. Uh, Maybe your translation says gave us birth. Uh, Just like God fathered creation, he also fathered human beings as a part of that creation. He made us. But I think James is talking more, than, more about than just physical life. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase that cues us to the idea of spiritual life. In the New Testament, uh, the word, the word of truth, which you see here in our text, or, or the word of God or the gospel, is the means that God used or the conduit that God uses to bring about new spiritual life. It's, it's how he transforms people. You, you see Paul in Romans 1, verse 16, he says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. But it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It's Paul saying, Here, here's what I notice. I go into towns and I preach the gospel, and what do I see? I see new life. 
I see people that don't believe in God come to believe in God. I see transformation. Like it's the power of God coming through the gospel. Like new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That anyone in Christ is a new creation. How does that happen? The word of God that's preached. Uh, remember in John 3, Jesus was having a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was actually intrigued by Jesus and curious. But, but he's a Pharisee and Jesus is Jesus. So, you know, I don't want to have a daytime meeting. They kind of have this nighttime meeting uh, where he asks Jesus some questions and he's leaning in. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You guys remember that? How did Nicodemus take that? He's like, I don't think mom's going to like that. I don't know if that'll even work, right? He's taking it literally. Like, I'm an adult. Like, how can that happen? He's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about spiritual birth. You have physical life. You need spiritual life. You need to be born again. 1 Peter 1.23 says that you have been born again, not of uh, perishable seed, not of something that's going to die, like a physical body. We already have that. But you need imperishable seed, like something that's going to last forever. And you have been born again through the living, abiding word of God. So in the beginning, God spoke and things came to an existence. The Father of light said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke and life came. And in the new creation, or our spiritual life, God speaks through his word and it gives life. So James is saying, you want to know how good our God is? Not only does he make this world and give you life, he gives new life. He gives spiritual life. He also brought about salvation. If you are a Christian, think about it, guys. You have been made new. You have been forgiven. You have been adopted. You are called his child. Don't let your, tr- your trials overshadow that good news. And he did that. Not you. You didn't think like, well, how am I going to overcome my sin? How am I going to reconcile back to God? How can I give myself new life? You, you didn't muster that up on your own. That's a work of God. Look at the, for the first part of verse 18. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth. Or maybe your translation says, of his choosing. Like, this is the will of God. Ever, like, think about it. Why are you saved? Like, why, why do I have new life in Christ? Why, why have I been forgiven? Why, why did that happen to me? Why, why am I here at church? Why, why am I singing to the Lord? Like, what, what happened to do that? Like, how, how is that a reality? Well, it's because of the will of God. It's his choosing, his pursuing, his initiating. Like, well, why did he do that? Because he's good. He's good. Like, you see his goodness in creation, and you see his goodness in your salvation. That's what James is reinforcing. He is a good God. And that's just not common grace. That's special grace shown to his people. And that special grace, or our salvation, has an outcome. Look at verse 18 again. It says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits, of his creatures. Now that term first fruits is an agricultural term uh, used to communicate an initial stage of something that gives promise of more to come. So we have some peach trees in our yard early in the season. You pick the first ripe peach. It tastes really good. That tells us, hey, we're going to get a good batch of, of peaches this year. We're going to have good fruit. Like whatever you pick first, like it's telling you what's to come. So this is like used as a sign to tell you this is more of this is to come. But it's used quite often in scripture. Let me show you three places in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the what? 
first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here's Romans 8. We go here often. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits, less enthusiastic as the last time, but still the same word, of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's one more, 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying, Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, it's a first fruit. It's saying, this is a sign of what's more to come, more life after death for his people. And I have confidence in life after death because of what we've seen in Christ. And our body is now grown, waiting for this better stuff to come that's been promised and what we've seen in Christ. We're the first fruits. So he's saying, hey, he's telling them there is something bigger going on than just your trial. This is just the beginning. The movement doesn't end with your persecution. It doesn't end with your trial. Christianity didn't end with the death of Jesus. There was resurrection. There's more to come. There's better stuff to come. They don't win. Rome doesn't win. Your persecution doesn't win. Your trials don't win. This is the first stage of God's work of redemption that's unfolding. And by saying first fruits, James is saying to these guys, you need to see beyond your trials. You need to be able to see beyond your trials, where you are at now, what you are going through now, what you're facing right now is not God's finished plan for you. I mean, the Israelites struggled with this. If you remember their story, they were enslaved for 400 years. God shows up, shows up and shows out, just like puts all the Egyptian gods to shame through his plagues and says, I'm the real true God, rescues the Israelites from slavery, leads them out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, leads them into the wilderness. Now, when they get into the wilderness, they don't have any food or water, especially at one place, they don't have any water. And they make a bad conclusion about God because of their trial. In that situation, they think that God has brought them out here to die. Really? He goes through all that work to declare his care for you, his provision for you, shows you his power, leads you out here. And it's not like he's a bad planner. It's like, well, I'd had the frogs and the locusts. I thought someone else would bring the water, right? He's like, no, he showed the power of God, the care of God, the provision of God. And then as soon as they have some hard times, they think God's out here to kill us. Come on. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by your trials. Don't let your trials lead you to make faulty conclusions about your God. But I guess when you're really thirsty, you can make some bad conclusions. And I guess when you're in the middle of a trial and a hardship, you can make some bad conclusions. You can make some bad conclusions about God. Don't, do you think that God sent his son to the cross to be beaten, mocked, and executed, declaring his love for you, only to let this life get the best of you? Only to let a trial ruin you? Come on. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't let your trial distort your view of God. Or think of it like this way. Don't get your theology from your circumstances. Rather, let your theology guide you through your circumstances. We got too many people that are getting their theology from their circumstances. And here's what I mean by that. 
I'm going through a really hard time. Therefore, I think God has forgotten about me. He's abandoned me. He doesn't care about me anymore. He doesn't love me anymore. Rather than saying, I know that God loves me. While I was yet a sinner, God declared his love for me on the cross. Therefore, how do I navigate these hard times knowing that God loves me? Church, listen to me. Why would you let your trial speak to you louder than the cross could speak to you? Why would you let your trial be more influential to your heart than the cross of Jesus Christ? Don't get your theology from your circumstances. Get your theology from the word of God and let that guide you through your circumstances. So are you able to see beyond your trial? Can you see the bigger picture even when you're in the midst of the storm? Let me maybe put it in this picture to help us be more convicted. If you're a parent of a teenager, let's say you have a 16, 17-year-old kid in your house and they just had a breakup with their boyfriend or girlfriend and you're trying to comfort that and they are devastated, crying, hurt, sad, and you're trying to comfort them and as a parent who's lived a little bit more life, you're telling them it's going to be okay and you're kind of glad about it, let's be honest. And like, whew, dodged a bullet there. Uh, but to their 16-year-old heart, it's the end of the world. I mean, it's so devastating and it's so painful. But you who's lived a little bit more life, you're like, you're going to be fine. All right? It's okay. You're, you'll live, right? You're, you're trying to provide some comfort because you have a bigger perspective. You've lived more life. You've lived through those things and you're saying, it's going to be okay. You wonder how our Heavenly Father looks at us when it's in our 35-year-old heart, our 45-year-old mind, our 65-year-old understanding, and we're just devastated because, did you hear the doctor's diagnosis? Because he said terminal. And then I don't have a job right now, and I can't pay those bills. Or, I don't understand how we're ever going to reconcile these relationships. And you are in your capacity... Right In your, your kind of 55-year-old capacity and your understanding, it is so devastating. But your Heavenly Father who has eternity and perspective is like, you'll be fine. You're going to be all right. In fact, kind of glad this happened because it's bringing up some things we need to deal with and talk about. We'll get through. But I got you. Sometimes it's hard to even see that because it's like, no, no, it's, this is like the end of the world. It's like, no. It's not. I hold the whole world in my hands. And I got it. And I got you. But, but can you see past that? Guys, life is hard. And I'm not trying to make light of our troubles by that illustration. I'm just trying to make much of our God. But life is hard. He'll throw some haymakers at us. But in our hardships, we can't lose sight of God's goodness. Because I'm telling you, it is impossible to walk faithfully with God if we are questioning his goodness. If we don't even know if he can be trusted, if we don't know if he loves us or not. James is in the book of James, we're kind of at a pivot point right here. Where when we progress through this study, James is going to get really practical. He's going to start talking about our behavior. But before he does that, he's trying to lay a foundation of the goodness of God. 
Because our faithfulness to God is built upon a foundation of our understanding that he's good. He can be trusted. If you don't have that foundation, any kind of attempt to be obedient to him will just crumble at your first trial. But if you lay this foundation that God is good, no matter your circumstances, then on top of that, we build the foundation of obedience to him. And James is about to turn that corner, but before he does, he's like, guys, you got to know, like, don't misinterpret the character of God because of your circumstances. You got to know that God is good. He's the same God that made this world and hung the stars in the sky, the same God that rescued you from your sins, the same God that's just, you're just the first fruits of more to come. He's that same God. Don't, don't lose sight of that. Like your view of God shapes your life. There's a book we've recommended to you before uh, we've had in the Resource Center. It's not there now, um, but it's kind of a Christian classic. It's by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And I'm pretty sure the opening line of the book, I I was going to check it, but I just, when I went to look for it, I found out my daughter borrowed it. Um, But I'm pretty sure something like this is the opening line of the book. The most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. When you think about God, do you think that he's good? Do you think that he's holy? Do you think that he's worthy? Worthy of your worship? Worthy of your obedience? I mean, what you think about God is going to shape your life. And the trials in this life are going to challenge the character of God in your mind. But if you're familiar with the story of Job, um, a man who went through unfathomable trials. And the background to that is Satan makes an accusation against Job to God. And the accusation was the only reason that Job loves you is because you're so good to him. And if you weren't so good to him, he wouldn't love you. That was the accusation. So God gave Satan permission to bring him through the ringer. And boy, did he. But something got revealed through that. And what was revealed was that Job didn't just love God because God blessed him. Job loved God because God was worthy of Job's obedience. Because what does Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. Like that was his conclusion. That was, and don't, church, don't we want that to be true of us? Like whether times are good or times are bad, blessed be the Lord. He's still the same good God. He knows what he's doing. He's working all things to good. And sometimes we go through trials. But he is always worthy of our worship. Always. So here's here's what I want you to remember. Holding on to the goodness of God is the key to staying faithful to God. Holding on to the goodness of God is key, or the key, to staying faithful to God. So here's what we need to do. We need to do what James is doing for, to them. We need to do what James is doing to them, and this is what he's doing. When, when times are hard, which was the case for them, when times are hard, reinforce the goodness of God. When times are hard, reinforce the goodness of God. And the reason we need to do that is because when those times are hard, that's when we're most vulnerable to kind of believe these deceptions and these lies about the character of God. And if you kind of start to doubt the character of God, you start to not follow God, not trust God, not obey God. So we need to kind of reinforce the goodness of God, especially when times are hard and those doubts want to creep in. 
So there's three areas to turn to uh, to do that. Creation, salvation, and redemption. Creation, salvation, and I'd say our future redemption. So let's get practical here. One, enjoy creation. Enjoy creation. Especially when times are hard. And Christians should excel at this. Because when we see a sunset, we don't just make a conclusion that that's the lights, the, the sun rays coming through our atmosphere and mixing with the gases that give it color. We're like, no, that's God. That's a sign of his goodness. That's a picture of, of, the, of the goodness of our God. Like we should enjoy creation, especially in hard times. We should enjoy companionship and, and friendship and food and all these good blessings that God has given us, especially when it's hard. Number two, we need to be grateful for salvation. We need to be grateful for salvation. When we're in the midst of a trial, we need to remember, no, God does love you. Don't listen to your trial more than what the cross clearly says to you. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are provided for. Don't, don't lose sight of that. We need to be reminded of that in the midst of our trial. Number three, be great, or excuse me, look forward to redemption. Look forward to redemption, especially in the midst of a trial. You are the first fruits. There is more to come. Don't only see the struggle that's in front of you. Look past it and see the promise that's coming to you. There will come a day when God will wipe all, every tear from your eye and he will make all things new and we will be with our God forever. See that in the midst of your struggle. Right? We should enjoy creation no matter what's going on in our life. Like We should be people that in the midst of a trial we still enjoy sunsets. Right? We still enjoy good food because we know our God is good no matter what we're going through. We should be a people that in the midst of the hardest times we're still comforted by God's love because our trial is not telling us that he doesn't love us. We know he loves us. And we should be people in the midst of a trial we're full of hope because we don't live for this moment in which the trial is happening. We live for a better moment that we know is coming. So life is hard. And we will have our trials. But church, I'm telling you, do not be deceived by your trials. Our God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Never forget that. Let's pray. Father, we we don't know a lot. And oftentimes we make bad conclusions. We go through a hard time and we think you've forgotten us or abandoned us or no longer love us when you have done more than we can imagine to declare it. And we ask for your forgiveness. When we let the hard things we go through talk louder to us than what you've gone through on the cross. When we're so wrapped up in the pain that we forget what the sunrise and sunset is telling us every day. You are good and you can be trusted all the time. Help us be a people that worships you every day, no matter what the day brings. Because we know that you give and you take away. Blessed be the Lord. Pray this in your name. Amen.